Kaylee, I told you stripping membrane is something I'm not good at. You know what? If I do it, at least I feel like I'm doing something in my control. It's, it's interesting. For that reason, many people I kind of requested yeah. um, a large um, data review of, I think, like 6,500 people showed that slight reduction of induction mm-hmm. and more patients went into spontaneous labor after yeah. stripping membrane. Right. So just for people to understand what stripping membrane means, we usually done in the office. Right. And it should be done maybe, I think, 39 weeks and beyond. Mm-hmm. And if you visualize that toilet paper tube, yep. that's the length mm-hmm. where an examiner has to get from one end to the other. Yeah. And we put our fingers into the cervical opening. Yep. And we try to separate the fetal membranes from the lining from the wall of the cervix. Right. And I mean, I don't have huge hand. I am what's considered average seven and a half globe size. Yeah. And it's not easy. Right. You know, yeah. unless the cervix is really low anterior and heads low. And, right. And then really dilated. Right. But we tried, didn't work. Uh, I mean, I was crampy and yeah, for a little bit, for a little yeah. bit. And, but like I said, even if it doesn't put me into labor mentally knowing like, OK, I tried something. And and that is why helps. many people feel it's something that they want us to do. Yeah. Yeah. So she'll come Let's out eventually. Let's wait and see. She'll come out eventually. You probably call me two in the morning. Tonight, you think? <laughs> call me. I've gotten some sleep. All right. So tonight we want to start our podcast about a TikTok video you have sent me. Yeah, there's a a video that's been going on around TikTok talking about students doing vaginal exams or cervical exams on patients under anesthesia and how that there are not laws in many states that prohibit this. Um, and there was concern that this could be done on someone going in for a procedure that had nothing to do with women's health, you know, say a tonsillectomy, and not giving consent and medical students learning how to do a pelvic exam on someone that was anesthetized. I'm going to put a huge trigger warning on this one because when I found this out, it really, really upset me. I don't even know how it first came up. I was going in to have surgery and someone warned me to make sure that they understood I did not want a pelvic exam while I was under anesthesia. And I was like, what? So, did a little research. There are only a few states where it is illegal to perform a pelvic exam on an anesthetized person. And that means that it is possible that if you went into surgery for something, sometimes as simple as a tonsillectomy, that students, interns, were allowed to practice pelvic exams on you while you were asleep. Until now, there has been no informed consent for this practice. A lot of medical students started speaking up, feeling like they were violating patients, and that is how it came to light. Google it. Still happening. Not okay. So let me walk you back. I don't think you were born. This is mid-1980s. Okay, now You were not born. I was in medical school in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State. And I remember the beginning of our third year when our clinical rotation started, we, they used model. Right. So there was a paid female patient who was behind the curtain Mm -hmm. and many of us lined up 
behind that curtain, and one by one, we went in and did pelvic exam. Oh, wow. That's how we started. Right. And I, of course, felt very awkward, like all of us did, yeah. because it's just the whole process. Yeah. It's about learning. Right. And the, the I remember the patient was very calm and engaging and yeah. here I am nervous medical student in my 20s and just don't know what to say yeah fast forward to my residency time um 1990 to 94 it is true we did not ask for consent mm -hmm. during procedures for example a major surgery let's say hysterectomy I think Dr. Hamid, one of my favorite surgeons, consented the patient. I'm not sure if he asked the patient, by the way, I'd be assisted by a resident mm -hmm. and a medical student. Mm -hmm. So that's 1990-94. Next 20 years, I had students, residents, and whatnot. I don't think we asked the patient. Fast forward where we are right now. Mm -hmm at Winchester Hospital. Yeah. What happens is, if I'm doing a procedure, then in the consent form, mm -hmm. I'm listed as a surgeon, and also listed are anyone who may be participating. Right. Medical student, resident, mm -hmm. and also ask patients permission to say, can he or she be in the room participating to this degree? Right. Some say yes, some say no, but that, that all has to be documented. Right. Now, we're talking about Boston, Mecca of Medicine. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we are ahead of some, mm -hmm. perhaps not, but that's where we are right now. Right. And unfortunately, it sounds like in this young lady's case, wherever she is, that did not take place. Right, yeah. And it sounds like it happens in other places, but it's it's nice to see that the progression over the years that things have gotten a lot better. You know, there's, I mean, take simple pelvic exam. Mm -hmm. Pelvic exam, it, it's straightforward, mm -hmm. perhaps. So if we start, if we explain the pelvic exam, let's talk about pep test. Usually mm -hmm. the patient is lying on a bag with the legs open. Mm -hmm. And first of all, every provider, male provider, needs to have a female chaperone. Right. That exam should never be done. So 30-some years I've been doing this, I never, ever did an exam without a female chaperone. Right. If I don't have one, I cancel the appointment. Right. It just isn't done. Mm -hmm. Some lawyers or legal mind also say even female providers should have, should have a chaperone. Right. And I think in many cases they don't, but it is recommended. Right. So we do external examination of the genitalia, we insert speculum, usually plastic, some still use metal. Mm -hmm. We visualize the vaginal wall, the cervix, and then we do a little scraping on the outside as well as inside of the cervix or endocervix to obtain a pap test. Mm -hmm. If it is a test for an infection, just inside the cervical opening. We remove the speculum and then we use two fingers in the vagina with one hand and with the other, we palpate the abdomen, try to feel the size of the uterus, mm -hmm. which way it's pointing, and then we also examine the side, the fallopian tubes and ovaries, and try to figure out is everything normal. Right. At any time I feel something enlarged 
or cannot feel, then we do an ultrasound. Right. And you know what's going on with America lately compared to 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. People are bigger. Right. Probably so harder to feel. Harder to feel. Yeah. There are many patients, I don't know what I'm feeling because right. it's hard because of the girth, yeah. the abdominal wall. And I bring that up because, you know, the um, one of the entities had said, oh, women don't need pelvic exam annually by their primary care. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I think I, w- I would have my wife have her pelvic exam done by a primary care if I knew that primary care physician was qualified. Right. I'm not sure if that's the case with every primary care. Yeah, it's interesting because before I got to the age where I was pregnant, I my primary care had always done my pelvic exams. I hadn't, I hadn't I'd never went to a gynecologist until I became pregnant. And the point I make is I just think some cases, some diagnoses may be missed. Right. Because pelvic exam is not that straightforward, right. especially because of anatomy. Mm-hmm. Now, this young lady had done, I don't know what surgery she had done, but yeah. you know the story is that she was told by a resident that she was menstruating because the resident had done an exam. Mm-hmm. Is that how she found out that she had a pelvic exam done, right? I'm not, I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't see that part. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that was the case. Or if it was someone had just told her that this is something that could happen and to be aware of it and make sure you say that you didn't want that to happen to you. So in 2021, I think that question is to be addressed and yeah. documented. Right. Now we can kind of go from there to obstetric violence. Right. And another thing, as I was researching and came across the story, I came across a few other kind of common threads of people that, you know, when it came to pelvic exams, I'm glad you mentioned having the chaperone in the room. That was one. Another couple people had said that the provider didn't wear gloves or had only one, like, which was just insane to me. I don't know what to say. Yeah. And then another thing was um, there were a lot of people who said that when they were getting their pelvic exam, the provider also did a rectal exam but didn't tell them that they were going to do that. And they just found out that this was happening as a finger was going into their rectum. I mean, that provider should be reported. Yeah. And this wasn't one. This was multiple people that had this experience. I think it's important that a provider verbalize every action during that exam. Right. First of all, the patient, you know, you're lying on your back, staring yeah. at the ceiling, and there's a drave in front of you, right. and you don't know what's going on. Right. So I talk my patient through yeah. the entire exam. Um, I usually, the first thing I say is, here is my hand right. as I touch the patient's leg. Right. Let them know they are being touched. Right. And then I move forward. The rectal exam, for anyone under 50, I can't imagine a reason for rectal exam. Yeah. 50 and up, we do a rectal exam to feel for any mass, hemorrhoid, as mm-hmm. well as to see if there's any bleeding. Right. Um, but I can't imagine that's being done. If that is being done, then that provider should be reported. Right, yeah. It's That's not acceptable. Yeah, I think the big thing is if you ever have an exam and something is done that makes you feel uncomfortable, knowing that you, know, you, you have the right to ask questions and to report and... To, to, to say, you know, this didn't feel right. Every state has border medicine where there's a hotline and you can remain anonymous mm-hmm. and report provider for various reasons, violations. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So let's talk about obstetric violence. Yes. What do you think about that one? That's a big one. It is a big one. And I, it, it, it's unfortunate. It happens all the time. I've seen it as a doula before. Um, I know you've probably seen it before as, as a provider. And um, I guess kind of the big thing is knowing that it happens and knowing how to prepare to advocate for yourself if you experience that. I think it's important for people to know that we're talking about not just physical. Right. It's verbal, mm -hmm. coercion. sexual, coercion. Mm -hmm. And it it happens way too many times. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel like people are not comfortable addressing their providers. Right. That's one of the biggest bigger well, problems. I think especially when you're in labor, you're in a very vulnerable place. You're often in pain. You don't, many people aren't educated about the process. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what's normal, what's not normal. And the doctor holds authority to them. And they view that as a person that has authority. And when they come in and say, we're doing this because of this, um, people are too afraid, too vulnerable, not in a place to question it and don't understand that they have and right. it's not just the doctors, right? right. It's, it's midwives, nurses, nurses yeah. anyone who will come in contact. Right. Um, and I think about, first of all, let's just talk about obstetrical care. In most hospitals like Winchester and others, mm -hmm. there's a form you sign that you consent for obstetrical care, mm -hmm. which includes vaginal deliveries in case of medical indication, cesarean section. Mm -hmm. So usually that's reviewed, signed, and it's in the chart. Right. Um, but if I really think about what in what scenario mm -hmm. would I ever do anything without patient's consent? Right. And people could say, well, emergency. Well, the truth be told, there aren't very many true emergencies. Right. It's not that common. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about cases. The common ones are, of course, vaginal exams mm -hmm. when the patient doesn't want one. Right. Right? That's one. That would be one, yeah. Because of previous history sexual violence, rape, whatever the history is, there may be a reason for that. Right. Um, and then forced C-section. Mm -hmm. I've seen one of the, the most obvious cases that I've seen was a, a patient came in um, and was in very early stages of labor but was admitted because her test came back positive for preeclampsia. And the provider wanted to break her water and wanted to start Pitocin. Um, and the provider came in, and I don't, I don't know what the conversation was earlier. Tell us, which hospital was that? <laughs> I, I can't. Okay. Um, I have to, I have to stay. Uh, you want the referral, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that's it. No, this is more for the the, the case of the uh, sake of the patient. Yeah. But um. The provider came in and said, lay on the bed. I am not asking your permission. I am breaking your water. I am not asking your permission. I am starting to Pitocin. And if you don't let me, you and your baby are going to die. So I don't even know where to start with that comment. <laughs> yeah. Because that doctor obviously is practicing based on his or hers insecurity. Mm-hmm. Because you're assuming by breaking the water, mm -hmm. rupturing the membrane, by stunning pitocin, yeah. it's going to end in 
a vaginal delivery in right. timely manner that would suit the provider. Right. It just doesn't happen that way. It, yeah, and it, I'm sure you can guess how that delivery ended in the OR. Mm-hmm. Um, after the patient pushed for three and a half hours, the OB came in and said, I think we can have a baby vaginally if you want to, but you're not trying that hard. So I'm going to give you 20 more minutes and you can decide now if you want to try harder or if I should just take you into the operating room. Who are these doctors? <laughs> I need to make a list of most unwanted doctors. Yeah. I, because I was, these doctors suck. Yeah. And, you know, after the first interaction with the doctor, when the doctor left the room, I said to the patient, like, let's call the patient care advocate because that's I mean, not right. I, I don't even know what to say about that that statement by that doctor because, you know, this is why there has to be a way for Maybe that doctor needs to go back to a, not school, but some kind of program, mm-hmm. retraining, or learn how retire. to talk to doctors or retire. Yeah. Because if he or she was allowing this patient to push for three and a half hours, what's another 30 minutes? What's right. another hour? Right. And she and the patient was so close. And I think if the doctor had come in and been like, we can do this, like you got this, let's do it. Give me that last bit of energy rather than you're not trying hard and I don't think this is going to happen. So I'm glad you mentioned this because we're talking about a patient who's very motivated mm-hmm. with or without a doula. Mm-hmm. With a doula, yeah. Right. In this case, with a doula. Yeah. And, and very also, well educated, took hypnobirthing, was prepared. And then another factor is the nurse. That nurse has to be experienced, mm-hmm. motivated, supportive. Mm-hmm. And in order for that to happen, it's the doctor, the midwife, whoever the provider is, has to be right there. And I have had plenty of cases where I'm in the room pushing with patients for two, three hours. Because one, I always say we can do this because you're fine and baby's fine. Mm -hmm. And I know this baby can come from below. Right. And you, because any negative, I can't imagine I'm lying on my back and I've been pushing any negative it's going to take away all positive energy. Well, especially after you've been doing this for three and a half hours. I mean, that's a long time. And I'm sure by that point, you're getting discouraged of why Why haven't I had my baby yet? I'm trying as hard as I can. So the, that doctor's name should be on like a neon sign and put up wherever the hospital is and say, do not go to this doctor mm-hmm. because you end up with a C-section. Yeah. The patient had a C-section. Yep, had a C-section. I mean, and the baby was was there. I mean, every time she pushed, you could see the head coming out. So another scenario would be, you know, if I don't do an, I need to do an episiotomy. Mm-hmm. I'm saying there's a uh, well-known case out of Southern California where a patient, actually this doctor tried to do episiotomy 12 or 13 times. Oh my gosh. And and the patient, and, and he, I think he said, if I don't do this, baby's going to die. Yeah. So 12, 13 times trying to do an episiotomy that I don't even know how that doctor got a license, but, um, you know, that's another time where doctor would say, I need to do an episiotomy instead of maybe talking about it, pros and cons. And I always say the last time I did an episiotomy, I think, I don't know, when was Reagan in the White House? It's been a while. In the (laughs) 80s. Okay. It wasn't Reagan. It was another president. Late 80s. It's been a while. And because... You don't really need to do it, even if vacuum delivery, it's not always required. Right. So there's always that time 
mm-hmm. you can have that discussion with the yeah. patient. Yeah, I, I think the important thing is always making sure that the patient understands what the risks are. So rather than saying you will die and your baby will die, explain what the risks are. Explain what your reasoning behind is. Have a conversation. Ask them if they have questions. Not saying this is what we're doing and you don't have a choice because you always have a choice. It's, you know, your I body. How often do we hear these stories? More than we should. More than we should. And good number of us obstetricians are responsible for these bad behaviors. And the one thing I'll say is after this particular scenario, we were in recovery and the patient was, you know, happy that her baby was there and the ordeal was over. Um, And she said, you know, I never really liked her at any of my prenatal appointments. Then why did she keep going? But she had a good reputation. So I thought she would be different when it came time to deliver. Hmm. And I just have to say, like, if you have this gut feeling throughout your entire prenatal care, listen to it because that doctor is not going to be midwife, whoever, they're not going to be different when it comes time to deliver. I I think that clearer communication from the get-go needs to be Mm -hmm. established. And, And what you just said really makes sense because you have to be able to verbalize with your provider and I can't really imagine any time that you cannot mm-hmm. you should always be given option A versus option B mm-hmm. um, you know we also talked about a case where a failed home birth mm-hmm. patient ended up in a hospital in the area mm-hmm. and the physician I think said how dare you try this at home Yeah. right and she ended up with a c-section right. and the patient is still traumatized yeah I mean, birth trauma is, is is a real thing. You know, we, so often you hear this saying of healthy mom, healthy baby, that's all that matters. And obviously, like everyone wants to come out of this with a healthy baby and for them to be healthy. But getting from point A to point B matters. If there's a lot of, you know, traumatic things that happen, it's going to have a huge impact on your mental health, sometimes your physical health and your relationship with your child. Your postpartum experience. It's a significant component Mm -hmm. which may affect postpartum recovery Mm -hmm. and depression. And your desire to want to have more children and your health in the next pregnancy. um, I'm familiar with a case where overall things could have gone better. Mm -hmm. But because of this particular labor and delivery outcome, the patient does not want to or afraid to get pregnant again yeah so the damage is huge Mm -hmm. and i don't believe we as providers are taking enough blame and and i would also hopefully tell your friend or your client Mm -hmm. that she didn't go back to the same one for the next one i i don't think she's had a second one yet but i did see her reaching out on some boards asking for a recommendation so hopefully she will be moving on. So I think, you know, only way for us to really make any difference is all these patients share their stories yeah, and let others know because it's like 
look, if, if it's bad Chinese restaurant, yeah. I'm not going to have any customers. Mm-hmm. If people say don't go to Chun's because food sucks, who's going to come? Right. But that doesn't happen with doctors, in which I don't really understand why. And I think another thing that people need to know is if you are delivering at a hospital, there are patient care advocates that yep. are there to work for you. So if you get yourself into a situation like this where, you know, whether it's in labor and delivery or any scenario where you're having this really negative interaction with a provider, with a nurse, whoever it may be, and you don't feel like you're able to advocate for yourself, that patient care advocate is there for you. You can call them. You can talk to them about what's going on. My 10 minutes is up. (laughs) Time for a baby. This baby is going to fly because this isn't her first. So I got to run. All right. Which is just eight minutes away. Do you want me to do another membrane strip before I go? Yes, please. Oh, I would, but you know what? I didn't bring my gloves. (laughs) And And I don't have have a chaperone. You don't have a female witness. I don't have a female chaperone. Otherwise, I would have done it. All right. Well, if I'm still pregnant on Tuesday for my appointment, well, it's a date. Okay.